Logan is smart. He loves philosophy and learning more about other religions. He's not a Christian, although he was sort of raised in a Christian home. They went on holidays and he occasionally went to youth group growing up. He is spiritual and believes there is a higher power or such out there. People just need to discover their hidden powers within in order to find their inner beauty. Logan is resistant to say that any one religious group owns the quote-unquote God conversation. After all, there are many pathways to God and each spiritual group has their own way of getting there. So who's to say one is better than the other? So he takes a little bit from Buddhism with a dash of Jesus mixed in with some new age spirituality, a sprinkle of Kabbalah, and readings from the Quran. He wants to experience a spiritual awakening that is in search for truth, if that can ever be found. Amen. Seven years ago, a young, energetic, skinny man got up to teach at Radiant Church. He taught from Acts chapter 17, and seven years later, look what you have done to this poor guy. I blame you. This is your fault. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly seven years goes by. It was June uh, seven years ago, and uh, yeah, the first week was Acts 17, and we were talking about understanding our times. And uh, with our subject today, I thought Acts 17 is where we're going to dive back into today as well. And this is just going to be a good old-fashioned Bible study. So if you've got your Bible, open up to uh, Acts chapter 17. If you use your uh, device, fire it up. And uh, otherwise, we always put the verses on the screen as well. So follow along any way that you want. What's so interesting about this story is one of my favorite stories in the Bible is Paul is hanging out in Athens, and uh, he's waiting on some friends, and what we'll read in a minute is uh, he gets distressed because there's a lot of idols, but, but even more fascinating what we're going to read in there is while they've got this plurality of idols uh, because they don't want to offend anybody, they're so hardwired not to offend anybody, they've even got this one rock for the unknown God. It's like we're not even sure who this is, but we know that just in case we're going to make someone mad, we've got this thing. I, and it's like the very definition of political correctness, and, and, and we're going to learn like, like there's a lot of similarities between us and the church and Acts. So let's dive in, if we can, to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 16, if that's okay. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Now, who's he waiting on? He's waiting on Timothy, which is kind of his protege, and also Silas. They're about to go on a missions trip, and he gets to Athens before them. So he's walking around, and he's checking out the sites, but when he's there, he's seeing there's idols like everywhere. Everywhere he goes, there's these, these idols, and it says that he's greatly distressed. But when you look at the Greek word there, it's so interesting. It's para, I always get this one, para, blah, 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 uh, on that, which is to rouse or provoke or burn with anger is what the Greek word literally means on that. So it's almost an understatement to say that he was greatly distressed. Paul's actually getting angry. And I've experienced before, as you've seen some of these pictures, as I had the privilege of going to Nepal uh, several years ago on a missions trip and was hanging out in Kathmandu. 
And it didn't matter what corner I turned, what alley I went down, what house I visited, no matter where I went. It was just full of these altars, and it was full of these idols, and, and they were just, they were hideous and mean looking and and a lot of them were covered in in blood and, and and it's like everywhere i went i found myself getting more and more distressed more and more angry the darkness of it the heaviness of it really weighed on my soul and so i i have a sense that's exactly what paul was dealing with he's just walking around everywhere he goes there's just these various idols and it can be tempting to say, well, yeah, I mean, that sort of thing could make us mad, and it's not really that big a deal. But let me ask you a question. Does America have its idols? I mean, I get it. Maybe they're not made of rocks and got blood on them, and maybe we don't bow down to them. But does America have idols? In fact, I'd argue ours are a little more hidden maybe a little more accepted, but just as evil nonetheless. We worship them the same as someone who bows down to a bloody rock. What are those idols? Money, sex, power. Here's one that always kind of surprises folks. Do you know your kids can be an idol? How about politics? Or you know what the biggest, newest idol in the last 20 years has been? Influence. Being an influencer. No wrong with that, but did you know that can be an idol too? Where you're more concerned about your influence and your pop popularity and your notoriety than you are about your relationship with God. Oh, America's got its idols. We just clean them up and sanitize them a little bit better than the others, don't we? But they all do the same thing. What's well, an idol? An idol is anything that distracts us from our undevoted devotion of God. Anything that pulls from our worship of Him. Well, how do you, how do you recognize an idol? Let me ask you some questions. What do you think about more than anything else in life? What do you think about? What has your time and attention? Or let me ask it differently. Who has your time and attention? Or another good question. What's your goal in life? And, and don't give me a Sunday school, Sunday morning answer, please. I want the Monday morning answer. What are you throwing your darts at in life? What's really important to you? Or let's see if I can't get in your business a little bit more. You say, why I do that? Um, how about that dirty little secret you're keeping? You know, the one you're hiding from us? The one you think nobody knows about? The answer to any one of those questions is your idol. It's that thing that has your time and attention, your focus. It's your goal. It's that secret. But let's ask an even harder question. We've already identified that America's got its idols. So let me ask you this. Are you bothered by it? See, Paul went into Athens, saw the idols, and got upset about it. 
But is it possible we've been so desensitized to it, it no longer bothers us? Or we live in a culture that says you're not, a, you're not allowed to identify other idols because you know that you're judging. Do the idols of this country bother you? Because Paul was greatly distressed when he saw the idols in Athens. So in verse 17, he says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And then a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. All right, so Paul heads to church and starts talking to the people there, and then he heads out into the, the marketplace to do a little bit of street evangelism, and that's pretty cool. And then it doesn't say it, but he kind of heads into the higher learning centers at that point. And the only clue we have to that is the Stoic and Epicurious uh, thing it has to say here. And this is where a Bible def, uh, dictionary would do you very well. And we can tend to read these things and kind of go right past them. In fact, I, I had one person say to me one day, they're like, yeah, he was talking to the people from Epicurious. And I'm like, that's actually not a city. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Epicurean and Stoic is a form of thinking. It is a philosophical lifestyle. It's a way of doing life. And so Paul found himself in the church, he found himself out in the street, and then he found himself in the educated centers, in the higher education areas of life. He kind of went everywhere and he was debating with them, but we don't have a lot of time to camp out of here. Who are these Epicureans and who are these Stoics? Well, right away you can know this. About the Epicureans, their sole goal is to seek out pleasure. In other words, at their life, they want to feel good and they want to be happy. It was a, a philosophy of simplicity that taught them to pursue happiness at all cost. Who are the Epicureans? Or, no, sorry, not the Epicureans, the Stoics. Well, they were focused on rationalism. They're driven by human logic and reasoning. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? On one side, you've got a group that's on a pleasure quest. On the other side, a group seeking logic and rationalism. For all of our technology improvements, we haven't done much to change the will of man at all. It continues. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? No, that is not a compliment. Uh, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And so they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So right away you got one group going, who is this babbler? And it's a good time to stop for a moment and remind us of something. When you teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and you tell others about Jesus, do expect sometimes to be condescended, put down, and made fun of. Jesus told us if they hate me, they're going to hate you. At no time when he said that to him, he goes, well, if they hate you, then just stop and, and give up and don't worry about telling them about Jesus. He never said that. What he did is he invited us to take up our cross and follow him. 
Just know that when you get honest with people and you tell them about Jesus, not everybody's going to say, praise the Lord, I've been waiting on you to come talk to me about that. You're going to face trouble. The second thing we need to take a a moment and just clarify, and I, I can't clarify this enough, at Radiant, in fact, at one point I brought it up several times, someone's like, could you please stop saying this? But I'm like, no, when the church can repeat it back to me, then I'll stop saying it. How's that for a deal, okay? What's the gospel? And the gospel is this, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven, set free, and reconnected back to God. That's the gospel. It's not any one of those three, it's all three of those things. And this message that Paul's preaching, that you can be forgiven, you can be set free, you can be reconnected back to God, it confuses the crowd. Why? Because the gospel presentation is completely contrary to what the culture teaches. Everything about the kingdom is upside down to what our culture teaches, and we have to keep that in mind. It sounds like absurdity sometimes to the, to the culture when we truly teach them the way of Christ. But we're called to do it anyways. And we're not called to water it down, and we're not called to soften it. We're called to preach the gospel. So what did they do? Well, in verse 19 it says, They took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Why? Well, Paul tells us. He says, well, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening about the latest ideas. All right, so first things first, what's the Areopagus? Well, it's a hill, and it's where the ruling council of Athens met. That's actually the hill right there. Uh, still exists to this day. It's where the ruling council of Athens met. And so uh, what did they do? Well, essentially, they marched Paul down to city council. That's what they did. They took him to the leaders of the community. But it was different, uh, and I got in trouble with this last service to kind of say it. I said the council is a group of intellectuals as if I'm saying, well, like our politicians today aren't intellectuals, and well, uh, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, <laughs> But here in Athens, <laughs> there are a group of intellectuals who just sit around listening to new ideas. And there's many of these folks in our culture today, too. It's kind of this idea, you know what, at our core, human beings are evolving. We're getting better. So we need to be exploring newer, creative ideas. Don't, don't worry about that old stuff. It's full of myths. It's not really for our times anymore. We, we've, we've gotten better. And it's a lie. But it was a lie that they're trapped in as well. And so let's summarize this city real quick before we hear from Paul. You've got a city full of idols. A city that believes there are many pathways to God. There's a group of people on a pleasure quest. There's others who are seeking logic and rationalism. And it's a culture afraid to offend anyone. Sound like any culture you're aware of? Welcome to our times. Not much has changed. And so if you're Paul, what do you say? What do we say to a culture that believes there's many pathways to God? Life's all about happiness. 
if you can't prove it, I don't believe it. And I'm scared to death to offend anybody. What do you say to that culture? Verse 22, Paul says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. That was not a compliment, by the way. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now what Paul does here is absolutely brilliant. It's just stinking brilliant. He finds this thing, an opportunity, a door to walk through. He, he finds this unknown God. And he says, here, let me, let me tell you about that. And instead of seeing everything for the problems and the bigness of it, instead he sees opportunity. And that's something I want to remind you of as you're talking to your ones And as you're engaging the culture with the message of Jesus Christ, and that's this, be alert to openings and opportunities. See, Paul found that opportunity in there. He's like, all right, let's talk about this unknown God thing. And and you may have different opportunities. Maybe they won't be as hard. Sometimes it's simply an opportunity where someone walks up and says, hey, I noticed you you don't act a certain way, or I noticed you don't fall trapped to these things, or you kind of do different things. Why? And at that point, you're like, opportunity, walk through that door and tell them about Jesus. We should be constantly looking for those doors and those opportunities. Paul says, let's talk about this unknown God. And then he tells us about this unknown God. In verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And notice right at the end here, he finds another door, another opportunity to engage the culture. He takes one of their own poets. As some of your own poets have said, We are his offspring. See, he's looking for bridges. He's looking for opportunities. He's looking for doorways. But there's one other important thing about this passage we have to remember. I've mentioned this before. Sometimes a little controversial, but I stand by it. And that's that sometimes your gospel starts with God. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jason? What I mean is this. If you don't have a proper concept of who God says He is, not who we say He is, who He says He is, 
and what we have done to separate ourselves from that God, why would you understand the need for a Passover lamb? See what I mean? If you don't have a proper concept of God and his holiness and his perfection and his righteousness and what we have done to offend that God, why would you understand the need for a sacrifice? All I'm saying is sometimes as you're talking to people and you're looking for those bridges and you're looking for those opportunities, especially in a culture of pluralism and atheism, sometimes your conversation starts in Genesis, not Matthew. Sometimes you have to take a step back and say, let me tell you who God is and we will build from there. There is a God. We need to tell the full story if we're to invite people into that story. Paul continues in verse 29, he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Step one about God. We've talked about this before. God is God and you are not. And it is not God's job to get on our page on who we think he is. It's our job to surrender who we think he is and get on his page and what he has revealed to us about his majesty and his glory. We live in a culture that likes to define God. In fact, most of us are playing God, if we're being honest. But step one, oftentimes, in that conversation is, God is who he says he is, not who you think he is. Number two, just a reminder, Paul's not being insulting to them when he says ignorance. In our language today, that might come across kind of harsh, and he's not being that way. One thing to keep in mind about Paul, he was properly skilled in both, uh, both rhetoric and debate as he was in his Pharisee training under a very famous uh, rabbi called Gamaliel. But it does bring up something for us to remember. While Paul wasn't doing that, there is something we need to remember. As we're talking to people about God and Jesus and our story, we want to build bridges, not barriers with them. What do I mean by a barrier? You'll never win somebody by insulting them, condescending them, or shaming them. You just won't. Build them up. Don't tear them down. It's not about winning an argument. It's about inviting them into God's story. There's a big difference. So use some wisdom. Verse 30. But now he, God, commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. In our political correct pluralistic culture, this is where we start getting in trouble right here in a big way. I need to ask you, what Paul just presented here, is that your gospel presentation? 
this idea that God is going to judge the world and you need to repent. Is that part of your gospel presentation? Because I got to tell you, it's not one the world likes to hear. We've often presented, and we've talked about this, gospel is simply a forgiveness problem only. It's a, I call that the gospel of sin management. God came to just take care of our sins. And that's part of it, remember? Forgiveness, set free, reconnected back to God. It's, it's, it's one. When we stop there, we only have a partial gospel. And the problem is, is we have a bunch of sinners out there who are forgiven but still live like the devil. God took care of my sin problem. And we go on living our old lives. But instead, Paul brings a word that Jesus used often into this. A little problematic word there. It's called repent. The gospel calls us to repent. But that's not a word we use in everyday language. I get that. So some of you say, I don't, I don't know what that word means. It's a good question. Repent means you change directions. It doesn't mean I feel bad about it. It doesn't mean I confess it. Those are different words. Repent means I was going this direction and now I go this direction. I used to think this way. I now think this way. I used to live like this. I now live like this. Repent means to completely change directions. Whatever path you were going down, you are now going down another path. So when Jesus called us to repent, he was saying change directions. And Paul now stands before this people and he says, you need to repent. You need to get rid of your stinking thinking and you need to get this thinking. You were going this way. You need to go this way. Why? Because when we go this way, we become more like Christ. And in becoming more like Christ, we produce fruit. And when people see that fruit, they are drawn to Christ. And so let's be clear. In order for you to produce fruit, you have to be supernaturally transformed by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, and you must have the Holy Spirit living in and through you. The gospel says at its core, Christ in us. But man, I got to challenge you, because I'm, I'm here, Pastor Ben's here, we're all inviting you to go out and talk to your ones and to meet your people, and so I got to ask, is that your salvation story? Christ in us. Do you believe that? Is that what you're calling other people into? In fact, I'll just ask the harder question. Have you truly repented? Or did you kind of have a moment one day? Maybe raised your hand and then went on living your life like the devil. Didn't repent. So as we conclude, how does this story kind of end? Well, it says in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Praise the Lord. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Wouldn't it be kind of cool to be listed in the Bible? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm one of the ones who believed. Sorry, squirrel. Uh, <laughs> my ADD acting up. <laughs> Why is the resurrection such a problem? 
says, talking about the resurrection of the dead, and some of them sneer at him. Why is it a problem? Well, remember, there's one group, these are the rationalists, and at the core of their thinking, they have this idea, you live, you die, and that's all there is, right? You've got another group out there saying, I can live any way I want. It's really all just being happy. It doesn't really matter in the end. But then you've got this guy, Paul, coming in and going, well, actually, there's a judgment day, and there's a resurrection of the dead, and... Um, you're going to be facing God someday. And it could be a problem. And it was for them. Do we have at the core of our gospel this idea that Jesus is coming back? It used to be something the church talked about all the time. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back this time, he's coming in judgment. It says his robe is dipped in blood. He is coming to set things right. And the Bible describes it as a terrifying day. I'm not trying to scare someone into Jesus, but there is a point when we've got to realize you really will live, you really will die, but then you will face judgment. Jesus really is coming back. We talk about salvation. It's not managing your sins. Salvation from what? You will be saved from judgment. Be sober of that. That's why they jeered at Paul. Others say they mocked him. It's so interesting, though. Paul never really seemed to care about that, which leads us to kind of ask ourselves, if Paul didn't mind being jeered at, why should we? I end with this, though. When Paul started the conversation, remember what he said? He told them that they're very religious. And he was building his case with this pluralistic culture who had a lot of religion. And quite frankly, what he was telling them is religion will not save you. You can take all the right classes, check off all the right boxes, and obey all the rules, and still completely miss Jesus. And so please remember this, it's not about religion and it's not about rules, it's a relationship. Remember, there, Matthew, Jesus told a story, there's a group of people that came to him, they said, hey, we did all the right things in your name, and Jesus looked at them and said, depart from me, I do not what? I do not know you. It's about a relationship. And repentance is turning from your story and joining the way of Christ. It's an invitation into God's story. And in that story, Jesus is both your Savior and He is your King. We bow down and serve Him. I've heard some commentators and scholars say that Paul failed in Athens, and I disagree. The reason they say that is that there was, there was no large uh, group of people who came to salvation, no big thing, it was just a few. But the Bible I read says that any time one person repents and comes to Jesus, heaven rejoices. Amen. And so I believe with all my heart 
that God has, was at work in Athens. And I think we can fall in that trap too. We're like, oh, we need some big revival. And that's great. Pray for that. Please pray for that. But we can forget that sometimes it's just about the one. And that's why I'm calling you to go find your one. We don't have to chase after the big. God produces the big, not us. But we are called to go engage our one. And ones matter. In this culture, I want you to be shrewd. And I want you to proclaim boldly and call people to repent. And don't be afraid of what the culture has to say. Don't water it down. Just tell it like it is. But do it with love and grace and mercy and invite them into God's story because it's the greatest story of all.